If you would please take your Bibles and open to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. If you're wondering where that is, it's the last book in the Old Testament. When we went through the book of Ezra, we saw that two prophets were mentioned by name, Haggai and Zechariah. In fact, we studied Haggai in the midst of looking at Ezra. Malachi is not mentioned in the book of Nehemiah, but we believe that he was, in fact, the prophet during that time. Um, Malachi means my messenger, and therefore some people think this isn't a real name, that it might, in fact, be Ezra, who's writing under the name of Malachi. I think it is a person, a real person, and he lived during the time of Nehemiah. He deals with the same issues, intermarriage with pagans, a neglect in paying tithes, uh, disregard for the Sabbath, the corruption of the priesthood, which is actually where he starts, and the existence of social wrongs. As best we can tell, Malachi is the last prophet before the coming of John the Baptist some four centuries later. And those 400 years are known as the 400 silent years, uh, four centuries in which uh, the voice of God was not heard. So we're going to look at the book of Malachi. But let me back up a bit and tell you something. My mother, before she lost much of her eyesight, had what was to me a really annoying habit. And that is, uh, whenever she would read a book, and she liked to read Agatha Christie Mysteries, for example, she would read the first chapter, and then she would go to the end and read the last chapter to find out who did it. And then she would go back and finish the book. I I think that's really not fair, and I think it really sort of destroys the suspense that the author is trying to create. Having said that, what I want you to do is to turn to the end of the book of Malachi, and uh, want us to read the last two verses. And, and remember, these are not only the last two verses of the book of Malachi. Uh, these are the last two verses in the Old Testament. See, I will send you, this is verse number five, the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. In both English and in Hebrew, the last word in the Old Testament is curse. And the last word in this book is curse. How do we get to that point? How do we get to the point where the last thing God says to his people before the coming of Jesus is curse? Well, we're going to go back to the beginning of the book and work our way through it and see how it is we get to that point at the end of Malachi. The theme of the book of Malachi is God loves us. God loves his people. But people found it very difficult to believe. These were difficult times. And for them, appearances seemed to say, God doesn't love us anymore. Uh, we are not the people that we once were. Um, and in fact, yes, we know we sinned. We went into exile. But the prophet said when we come back that the land would be very fertile. It would, in fact, have miraculous fruitfulness. That the population would increase to a great number. 
and there would be a, a new king like King David and there would be great national glory. That, in fact, is not what was happening in their situation. None of these things had happened, in fact. The opposite was true. As best we can tell, they experienced a series of famines. The population, we know, was a fraction of what it had been. And they were still under a foreign power. They were under Persia, and then they would be under the Greeks, ultimately under the Romans when Jesus comes into the world. But Malachi's theme is God still loves his people. The theme is God's unchanging love. His style is very direct. There are 55 verses in this book, and 47 of them, 47 of them are first-person addresses where God is speaking to his people and anticipating their answer. And then he responds to their anticipated answer. If you look at the first verse, the book opens with these words, an oracle the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. So we need to be clear as we start, this is the word of the Lord. This is God speaking through Malachi. But we may miss something because when we think of Oracle, uh, beyond the computer software company, when we think of Oracle, we think of uh, a proclamation, some type of prophecy that is given. Um, And this is not, I think, the intent. The word is found Well, if you look at a King James, if you have a King James version, it says the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And this has a much more ominous feel to it. An oracle, it's like, oh, maybe good news is going to come. And a burden is like, well, this this is not starting out well. The word is used 27 times in the Old Testament. And with two exceptions, which are found in the book of Proverbs, they always refer to a prophetic word which is of threatened judgment. That is, whenever you see the burden, then it means, okay, this is bad news. That something is being prophesied that unless people change the way they live, there will in fact be judgment. So as the book opens with the burden, we sort of feel a connection toward the end when we read of a curse. But it starts out the burden. Then we come to verse number two. And this is the foundation of the book. I have loved you says the Lord. The word to love in Hebrew is used 32 times in the Old Testament, 23 of which are cases of God loving Israel as a nation or individuals. God loves his people. This is something we find throughout the Old Testament. But what is God's love like? It's very easy, I think, for us to say God loves his people, but what does this mean? What does God's love look like? There are at least three qualities. The first is that God's love is independent or sovereign. That is to say, God is the one who made the world, he created the world, he is ruler of the world, and he loves because he chooses to, not because he has to. Um, His love is in fact quite independent. No necessity is laid on him that you are God, you made these people, you have to love them. Not at all. God loves because it is his nature. And as we've seen before in studying the Trinity, before God made anything, there was already love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So there is eternal love there and God's love for his people. That's his choice. He is free to love or not love, and he chooses to love his people. The second thing about God's love is that it is unconditional. 
Um, Israel is reminded of this time and time again in Deuteronomy. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than any other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the people of God are reminded that the only reason, the cause for God's love, rests entirely on him. He didn't love Israel because they were a big, powerful nation, because they were more numerous. No, in fact, it's quite the reverse. They were a very small people. He started with an old guy, Abram and Sarah, his wife, and from them to Isaac, and then Jacob, and then the twelve, and then they go into Egypt. And they come out there, when they come out of Egypt, they are a large nation. But God chose them because of his love. It's on his side. We find this expressed in the Old Testament time and time again, for his own name's sake. For his own sake, God does this. God loves his people because he is a God of love. And he loves them for no other reason outside himself. He loves them because he chooses to do so. In the book of Ezekiel, we find an allegory which describes how God loved Israel and made them to be a people. This is from Ezekiel 16. On the day you were born, this is an allegory, by the way, this is not literal, but an allegory to describe God and Israel. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live. God loved Israel. He chose to love them. We cannot say, we should not say, God loves because he sees possibilities. And I, I think sometimes we fall into this, that we know we have a good friend or we know a, what we call a good person. And we say, you know, that person really, sh- wish God would save that person. They're a good person. They, you know, they need to be saved. But as, as much as to say, because there's real possibility there. There's real potential. Uh, years ago, in a rather bad comedic way, someone was saying that they hoped Muhammad Ali would be be converted because then he could say God is the greatest instead of I am the greatest. Um, God loves because he chooses to, not because he sees the possibility of this person or this nation becoming someone great. What we find in scripture is that God loves when there is nothing to love and where there is nothing worthy of love. And yet God loves. It's unconditional. The third thing of God's love, the third characteristic or quality, is that it is intimately personal. In a well-known passage from Hosea 11, which is quoted in Matthew 2, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Moses points out the reality that God is transcendent, and up in the heavens, and yet he loves these people of the earth. He loves Israel. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection 
on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. As we're reminded in each verse of Psalm 136, his love endures forever. So as the book opens, the people are reminded, I have loved you, says the Lord. It's not only something in the past, but something that is continuing in the present. That there is, in fact, God loving his people in the past as well as in the present. But the people respond, if you look at verse number two, but you ask, how have you loved us? And here the heart of the matter is revealed. Their situation, their circumstances did not say to them, God loves you. The hardships that they were experiencing did not announce to them that God loves you. And yet the first words from this burden, this oracle that is given to Malachi is, I have loved you. This is a generous announcement. It's a wonderful announcement when God says, I love you. But the response is unbelief, disbelief. How have you loved us? I think God is tremendously patient that he would allow them to even ask such a question and not simply say, okay, I don't love you. But he does continue to love his people. His answer continues in verse number two. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated and have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. I find this passage fascinating because I think that Malachi's listeners had no problem with it. We have a problem with it because we know that God is love, but to say that God hates something or someone seems rather difficult for us. We know from other passages that there are things that God hates. Isaiah chapter 1, Stop bringing your meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. In Amos 5, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. And then in Proverbs chapter 6, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Do you know this passage from Proverbs 6? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. I think we can agree that there are certain things, certain circumstances, situations, that in fact hate is the right or is the proper response. As someone put it, it's only the person who has truly loved that person can really hate, I think, in the proper way. Can hate that which is evil and that which is wrong. To a parent who loves his or her child, uh, when there's danger for the child against the child, then the parent can, in fact, respond with hatred. And I think we would say that that is appropriate. But having said all that, I don't think that's what's being said here. I think something else is intended. Throughout the Old Testament, we find different pairings, usually of wives, interestingly enough. 
in which one is referred to as the wife who is loved and the wife who is not loved. So you have at the beginning with Rachel and Leah. Rachel was the one who was loved and Leah was not. In Deuteronomy 21, in the law, there's a specific set of laws with regard to the unloved wife and her children. If a man has two wives and he loves one but not the other, and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love, when he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves, in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as his firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. That son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. If we can just get past the idea that a man has two wives and he loves one and not the other. um, We see this, by the way, with Hannah and Penina, uh, the wives of Elkanah. And it is Hannah who is childless, who is barren. She prays to God and God gives her Samuel. Uh, We find this over and over again. It isn't a case of love versus hate. It's love versus unloved or preferred, one having the priority and the other one is not preferred, is thought less of. Jesus uses this same type of thinking in Matthew 10. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's not a question of I have to hate my parents in order to love God. That language is used, but what is intended is I must love God first, and then I can love my parents, my siblings, my brothers and sisters, uh, others in my family. So, the reference to Esau, uh, this is actually Edom or his descendants, it's not a call for psychological or absolute hatred. I think the Jews would have been happy with that. They're like, yes, God hates them. I don't think that's what is intended but rather a ranking. Israel comes first. This is the priority. This is the preference. These are my people, and I have a job for them to do. God loves his people. He has put them first. And the proof of that is seen in that Esau, even though he was the twin brother of Israel, or Jacob, as he was originally known, God has given the priority to Israel. By the way, what is described in these verses with, with regard to what happened to Esau, to Edom, is in fact something that happened during the lifetime of Nehemiah. And that's why we think that Malachi was a contemporary of Nehemiah. I don't think the Jews understood what was being said here, though. For them, it's all about them. If we are the chosen people, if we are the ones that God loves, if we have the priority, why are our lives in such difficult circumstances? Verse number five. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. What, what can this mean? By the way, as I just mentioned, Israel is the name used here, which is quite strange. If you've read the Old Testament, Israel split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was known as Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. The northern kingdom's gone. The Assyrians took them. They're gone. All that's left is Judah. And they're known as Judah. 
but here they are referred to as Israel because they are the descendants of Jacob. Jacob was given the name Israel after the Lord wrestled with him all night. So these are the people of God. But they had a very narrow view of God's love for them, his affection for them. In many ways, I would say they were quite insensitive to the love of God and the grace of God. They saw it as something they deserved, something that God owed them, rather than seeing it as something that God graciously had given to them. They seem to have forgotten the promise also that God made to Abram before he became Abraham. I will make you into a great nation. The Jews would say, that's us. I will bless you and I will make your your name great and you will be a blessing. So far, so good. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. I think the Jews are there. And then he goes on to say, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What is this blessing? Paul tells us in Galatians, it's the gospel. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. We are here today because of the promise that God made to Abram centuries ago. We're not Jewish. We're Gentiles. But because of what God had promised to Abram through his people, finally in the Messiah, now the gospel, the good news has come to us. God's grace would go beyond the borders of Israel. And in fact, it has. This will come up again, by the way, if you look at verse number 11. This will come up again here in chapter 1. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. The reality is there was tremendous evidence of God's love. The people in Malachi's day just could not see it. And I think on some level we can't be too harsh. I think we might be able to relate. There are times when we might be inclined to question, because of difficulties, the love of God. Whether or not God even knows about our situation. Whether or not he even cares. And if we're not not careful, we might even say, we're not sure God even exists. Simply based on our circumstances. Israel was wrong and we would be wrong to do that. We should say with the psalmist, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Even in the midst of affliction, we should know that God loves us. But in the case of Israel, there's something else going on. Ironically, while they were questioning God's love toward them, they seemed to have turned a blind eye to themselves, that they were not in fact doing what God said that they should do. Look at verse number six. A man, our son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. Israel doubted God's love for them, and yet they were marked by indifference, carelessness, and half-heartedness as they worshiped God. If they were convinced that they were the people of God, that they were the chosen people of God, Why weren't they keeping up their end of the bargain? Why weren't they living up to their side of the covenant? And as we saw in the book of Nehemiah, they actually renewed the covenant and signed it. And yet here it is, they're not living up to their word. All the while pointing the finger at God saying, you don't love us. You don't love us anymore. Completely ignoring their own disobedience. And this is what the rest of the book of Malachi will be about. 
Follow along, if you would, as I read the rest of chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple door so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is how we begin our study, the book of Malachi. Did you know that if you were to sit down and read through the Bible in 10 days, which is doable, it takes about 72 hours to read through the Bible, more than seven days would be spent in the Old Testament. Think about that. Of the 10 days, more than seven would be spent in the Old Testament. And yet it would seem oftentimes that the Old Testament is neglected. I've tried not to do that here in my time at Melrose uh, Just recently we've looked at Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and now we're looking at Malachi. But as we study these books, we need to keep something in mind. That the words of the Old Testament most frequently were addressed to a specific people, at a specific time, in a specific situation, in a specific culture. This is true, by the way, of the the New Testament as well. Remember a, a teacher who said that if somehow the letter to the Galatians had been sent to Corinth and the letter to the Corinthians had been sent to Galatia uh, and the people read the letters, they would have said, well, it's nice to hear from Paul, but we have no idea what he's talking about because the situation in Galatia was quite different from that in Corinth. These are addressed to specific situations. We need to remember that we are a specific people in a specific time, specific situations, specific culture. And we need to be careful as we take the word of Scripture and apply it to our lives, that somehow we don't mangle it or somehow miss the point of what is being said. I think in, as we begin Malachi, we can, in fact, agree that there are times in our lives when we are tempted to question the love of God, usually in difficult circumstances, not when things are going well, I think then we're rather pleased with ourselves that God loves me. Look at all these wonderful things that are happening to me. 
But as a child, when being disciplined, or when they're not given something that they want, they may accuse the parent of not loving them, and then may in fact respond, I hate you. Like spoiled children, the people that Malachi is speaking to do not believe that God loves them anymore because he's not giving them what they want. Their lives are hard and they have become hardened. And so God loves them. His love is unchanging. and They don't buy it. They don't believe it because their lives are too difficult. We might, in certain circumstances, be tempted to say the same thing. And we need to be reminded of the quality, the character of God's love. That it is sovereign, it is independent of any human demand. No necessity is laid on God. God doesn't have to love us. His love is unconditional. It's not because we're wonderful people or that he could somehow say, yeah, this Damon guy, he has the potential to be a nice guy, so I think I'll love him. And his love is deeply intimate. God doesn't love us just like sort of spread this blanket of love over us. He knows us intimately. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And the reality that he still loves us is all the more amazing because he knows us so well. We must take care that we not be like the people of Malachi's day and say, um, how have you loved us? Yeah, I'm not so sure God loves me. It's quite clear here. I have loved you, says the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, it seems to be our nature to want to be the center of all things and that we are the ones who determine if something is happening or not. And so when our lives aren't going the way we plan or the way we want, we point the finger at you and say that you don't love us the way that you should. The reality is you have loved us with an everlasting love, an eternal love an unconditional love. There is nothing in us that is lovable, but you have loved us and continue to do so. It may be that at points in our lives things will be dark or difficult, but you're there with us. There may be times in our lives when you discipline us. It is because you love us. As we go through Malachi, may we learn from it. May we be reminded of your unchanging love. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you in spirit and in truth. We do remember this one that has been mentioned, John Salvaron, that you would work in his lives and his life and in the as his sister and her husband are there, that they might be able to work things out. Give them wisdom and protection as they face this difficult situation. As we leave your house today, may your spirit and grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.